Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. How's it going, everybody? It is 2.20, Friday afternoon, July the 17th, 2020. And for those of you who have never been here before, I do the timestamp and date stamp so that I can give a little bit of context to the things I'm saying. But before we dive into that, my name is Adam. I'm a husband, father of three, just finished hour 60 at work this week. And somehow, someway, despite being a husband, father of three, working full-time and then some on a job, we find a way to improve at magic on a time and or financial budget, in my case, both. So for those of you who are looking to glean the most value out of your playtest time and the budget that you have allocated to magic, uh, this is your show. So... While we were away this week, we had some pretty big announcements from Wizards. We had the the, ben, the BNR announcement that affected basically every format but standard. Uh, so we'll just start from the newest format back. We'll do it that way. Historic saw Winota, Joiner of Forces, and Fires of Invention banned from Suspended, which basically like I guess that that was one of the first things on my mind as far as one of the things they might do um, it's just both of those cards are just a little bit too powerful it kind of falls in line with the theory of banning Aetherworks Marvel when it was in standard the idea that those cards put a design constraint on what they can print they kind of learned the hard way with Fires of Invention that you can't put a bunch of Cavaliers in Standard with a card that lets you double up on five drops. And it also just makes every single five drop card better because now instead of the possibility of that being the only thing you spend your turn on, now you get to do, you know, they have to consider it from the constraint of what happens if two of these resolve in the same turn? What does that do to a game state? And it turns out it does a lot. On balance, Winota puts a very, very clear design constraint on how powerful a human creature they can print. Which is to say, like, Agent of Treachery was the clear straw that broke the camel's back in standard with Winota. And without Agent of Treachery, the card is, is fine. It may not be going forward, but when it comes to Historic, it's just a little bit too powerful to curve out, one drop, raise the alarm. I mean, even if you're just playing... Um, even if you're playing the Naya Winota deck and you go turn one, Llanowar Elf or Elvish Mystic, I guess it would have to be Land of War Elf. Like Land of War Elf or Gilded Goose. Turn two, raise the alarm, make two creatures. Turn three, Winota, attack with both. Get two triggers. Fluke, double Angrath's Marauders into play, kill you. Like, each one of them is lethal. It's just a little bit too powerful. And... There's more powerful humans the further back in time you go. So it's definitely one of those cards that, owing to the nature of what Historic has at its disposal right now, it's a good thing to not have it. And there's not a scenario where you intend to play Winota in a fair and balanced and interactive way. The whole point of playing Winota is just to floop as much nonsense onto the table as you can. That's all we're here for. 
So I don't disagree with either one of those bands. With Pioneer, or actually, sorry, one more banning in, in Historic, Nexus of Fate. I almost forgot because I guess it wasn't my turn yet. Um, <laughs> Nexus of Fate. I mean, what is there to say about this card? I could never see that card grace the screen on Arena again. And I will have seen it more times than I ever want to see it in my lifetime. And I don't play that much Arena. <laughs> it's just the kind of card it is. Similar to Winota, you don't play Nexus of Fate to play fair. You don't play Nexus of Fate as a one-time time walk that pulls you ahead and you get there right then and there. Sometimes it happens, yes, if you were playing like the Teamer Nexus decks that still played uh, Expansion Explosion, and I've been on the receiving end of that before. I did the thing where, you know, my opponent played Nexus... I looked, I looked the opponent dead in the eye and I said, okay, show me a win condition and I will scoop. And he looked back at me and says, okay, untap, says, how about this one? And pointed an explosion at my face. I said, oh, yeah, that'll do. <laughs> I'll put it this way. If Nexus of Fate is too powerful for Pioneer, it's definitely too powerful for Historic. And then the last thing to change in Historic is they suspended Burning Tree Emissary. Because I guess without the Nexus decks to serve as a foil to Gruul, like, I don't know. Uh, Gruul decks were probably just the de facto best aggro deck. I honestly haven't played a ton of Historic, and what I have, I've generally just kind of tried to play stuff. I haven't really tried to play like figure out the historic metagame yet but I can definitely see a scenario where a gruel deck that has access to burning tree emissary is probably going to be too good even if you just do what we were doing in pioneer uh, blitz and get the like the the medium hand where you turn one pelt collector turn two burning tree into three three zertar goblin attack you for attack you for three presenting eight power on the board that's, that's pretty stinking good that's pretty good and that just gives you a litany of creatures that allows you to turn Embercleave on earlier than you have any business doing like the cards just it's it's not the kind of card that plays unfair because you're we're talking about an aggro deck here but it is the kind of card that it rewards you for nothing but drawing it. Like, there's not a skill-intensive way, there's not a, an, interactive fair, a, a, an interactive way to play Burning Tree Emissary. Like, if you cast Burning Tree Emissary and use it to cast a Tarkus Command, it feels like you're losing. If you cast Burning Tree Emissary and use it to cast Lightning Strike at their creature, it feels like you wasted a card somehow. Burning Tree Emissary is there to fuel the most broken starts your deck is able to access. So, there you go. And that's all for Historic and Pioneer. The only change that was made was the unbanning of Oath of Nyssa and yikes. I cannot speak from a place of experience yet. I haven't gotten around to playing a bunch of Pioneer on Magic Online yet. Had some equipment issues. The laptop that I'd intended to be playing it on now, for whatever reason, just won't install it. I'm gonna have to go around. To, I'm gonna have to get around to putting it on my desktop one of these days. I just keep forgetting to do it. Absent-minded, not professor. It's what I do, but. Everything I see on the internet uh, regarding Pioneer is overwhelmingly negative and in large part due to the fact that Demir Inverter remains not just a deck but the deck of the format. And that's not good.
it has the splinter twin quality to it where two cards come together and you win the game. That's not the problem. The problem is, unlike splinter twin, you don't need both pieces in play at the same time. You have multiple ways to get to the same combo. It would be like if the Splinter Twin could, Splinter Twin deck could go off as long as both pieces resolved and they didn't have to resolve at the same time. Like imagine if the, the Tricks deck, the, the Illusions of Grandeur Donate deck, could donate the Illusions of Grandeur out of your out of their graveyard after you blew it up. That's what it looks like. That's what it feels like. Right? The car, it, Inverter of Truth exiles your library, replaces it with your graveyard. And between Dig Through Time, Carmack Angler, Tassiger, if you play it, you can, you don't have to. But just Dig Through Time, careful graveyard management on your part. You can just cheese somebody out really early in the game. You know, cast Dig, Exile My Graveyard, cast Inverter, I Have No Library, cast Thassa's Oracle, win the game. Or, you know, Inverter My Library on turn four, I've got three cards left, draw for turn, cast Thassa's Oracle. Oh, look at that. My devotion is two. I win the game. Like, even if they kill your inverter, it doesn't matter. Even if they kill your oracle, it frequently doesn't matter. So, I understand why players are frustrated with Pioneer. Oath of Nyssa is unbanned, according to the announcement, to give green Nykthos Shrine to Nyx decks a big boost. But in reality, the deck that's probably the most excited to see it come back is another combo deck in Kethys, which can play it out of the graveyard because it's a legendary enchantment. Yuck. A card selection spell playable out of the graveyard. Gosh, where have I heard that before? All right, we don't normally do that. It's normally a little too powerful. But I digress. And then Modern, Arkham's Astrolab was banned. Good riddance. Similar to the reason it got banned in uh, Pauper, Arkham's Astrolab enables too greedy of a deck for too little of a cost. So I am not remotely sad to see that card go. Uh, that, that's all I got. I haven't played Modern in like six months. Somehow, some way, our local store has been much more interested in playing Pioneer. I guess in large part due to the fact that nobody locally has actually built the inverter deck. Maybe that's all it is. But that's that's what we got. <laughs> and then in uh, Pauper, they banned Mystic Sanctuary and they banned Expedition Map. I don't disagree with either one of those things. I would like to have seen more of a of like a sledgehammer blow to Tron instead of just we'll take your expedition map and make you work a little tiny bit harder. But I'm not upset to see them go after it a little bit. And Mystic Sanctuary really should never have been a common virtue or lack thereof of cycles this is just the kind of card the kind of card effect that's just a little bit too powerful at common so that kind of sums up our major announcements on the more micro level what i'm doing right now uh, i've mostly been playing i've been trying to ladder standard and i have been in a bit of a rut not been able to find a deck to reliably play and win with 
And the one that I ended up stumbling into was kind of what inspired this week's episode, if I'm being honest. And that deck was, is it Flash? Which we'll, we'll look a little bit more in-depth into in a while. In a little while. But suffice it to say, it's a deck that I feel really comfortable playing. It's a deck I think has not favorable matchups, but not many unfavorable matchups. It's it's kind of a it's kind of trying to be a 50-50 deck. It does its job well of just giving you a little bit of play in nearly every matchup. The ramp decks can obviously outpace you very, very quickly. If you let them, if your hand is bad or if you play incorrectly. But it's a style of deck that I've been comfortable playing for a very long time, and it's been something near and dear to my heart. It's also, notably, a deck I haven't updated since December, still. And I think I've dropped two games with it on the ladder since I started playing it again. So, just goes to show, sometimes the old things aren't dead. And that leads into this week's episode topic in which normally during that last segment, I would have actually like gone in depth and done a little bit more of a, a deck critique or a deck profile, so to speak, of what it is that I'm laddering with this week. Or if it's the same thing I was using last week, just go over some of the changes. But instead, I'm going to be talking about the archetype as a whole. Not just is it Flash, but Flashes. Like, all of them. So, Flash is a unique deck. Because Flash decks aren't all the same archetype. And I know that sounds wild to hear. But the more I thought about it over the last couple of weeks, as I was playing this deck, as I ran into other flash decks on the ladder, as you will. I, the more I think about it, the more there's a flash deck, it feels like there's a flash deck in every major archetype. I.e. there's an aggro flash, there's a mid-range flash, there's a, a control flash, there's even like a the combo flash. The, you know, There's all kinds of flash decks and each of them present different benefits and we you know strengths and weaknesses and good and bad matchups and everything so i thought this week would be a really good opportunity to look at each of them what they bring to the table why they're constructed the way they are and what benefit you can glean as a magic player from having all this information other than knowing how to play flash decks but before we go into that what the heck's a flash deck? If you've never, you know, if you haven't played a lot of standard, if you're fairly new to magic, you may not know what I'm talking about. The flash mechanic, if you want to call it that, is the ability to play what would normally be a spell on your turn during your opponent's turn. Uh, flash is typically assigned to creatures, enchantments, artifacts, uh, abilities, like to Fairy Master of Time has the ability to activate his loyalty abilities as though they had Flash. The key thing about Flash and one of the things that drew me to the strategy very, very early on, the core concept of a Flash deck hinges on tempo. Regardless of what else they're doing, whether it's an aggro, mid-range, combo, control, whatever. The core concept of a Flash deck is all about tempo. That is what you are here for. And that's okay. Every flash deck just about features low cost interaction, card selection, um, Top-end threats either have flash or allow further play on the opponent's turn. Cards like Wilderness Reclamation, cards like, or either allow or even just actively encourage play on the opponent's turn. Cards like Wilderness Reclamation, 
um, night pack ambusher, primeborn cutthroat. You know, you either play pay a lot of mana for a very powerful card, but on your opponent's turn, or you pay a little bit of mana for a solid card on your own turn or your opponent's turn that enables you to continue doing what it is your deck is designed to do. Sometimes it's a payoff card, sometimes it's an enabler. But whatever the case, one of the other key tenets for flash deck construction is card selection. Opt is a, is a staple in basically all of them. Um, Omen of the Sea is defensible in several of them. The ability to find the cards you're looking for, the ability to find the correct interaction for the right situation. These are core tenets for every flash deck. But what does it mean if you're an aggro flash deck? What am I talking about when I say an aggro flash deck? Well, if we are talking about aggro flash and standard and to a lesser degree historic we're talking about mono blue tempo mono blue tempo is a little bit of a weird beast because it's a very good deck you know you have a combination of cheap threats counter magic a couple of like three drop-ish haymakers and a smattering of bounce and counter magic. Usually buoyed by a card draw engine or and or just like one or two powerful creatures. But by and large, you're interested in playing a fair, interactive, interesting game of magic. And that's a good thing. So what is it what does how is the mono blue tempo or the mono blue flash deck constructed again nearly all of these flash decks are going to leverage or use a window that's created by leveraging tempo which is to say outpacing your opponent countering their countering their four drop with your three drop counter spell uh bouncing the creature they just spent all their mana to cast all of that you're doing that for the express purpose of leveraging whatever it is your deck is trying to do. In the case of Aggro Flash, the way you're leveraging tempo is to continuously gain combat steps. You want to keep attacking your opponent. That's what you're gaining by leveraging tempo the way you are. And when you do, when you do it right, your deck snowballs. It's a deck that's very much greater than the sum of its parts. Because one of the key, almost almost requirements for mono blue tempo decks is individually your cards are pretty hot, pretty horrible. But once they come down and they start to build on each other, they start to snowball feels like one of the better decks in a, in a given format. If your opponent can make the game about a bunch of one-for-ones where you're trying to fight your opponent on a card-for-card -card basis all the way through and there's no sort of finesse for you to finagle your way through with, it's going to feel like a slog. But then there's the rest of the time. then there's the rest of the time so mono blue tempo marries low curve interaction and card draw to cheap evasive creatures those creatures are evasive by by necessity because you're in mono blue you are not going to get good ones you're rarely going to get rate like really good rate creatures creatures that are really big for their cost so what you have to take advantage of is strength in numbers and trying to invalidate the opponent's ability to block. 
It plays, as I mentioned before, like a fish deck, as Patrick Chapin would call it. Think Merfolk. You get on the board, you get a little bit ahead, and then you just fend off your opponent's ability to do anything better than you. That's what you're doing. You use your tempo to keep attacking. Keep pressing the little bit of a lead you've got. Now, what do these decks prey on? Why would you be interested in building a, a mono blue flash deck? Well, if your format is chock full of mid-range piles that are playing lots of five and six mana threats, you know, a really good example would be where the mono blue tempo deck was last year when Sultai mid-range was kind of the king of the crop, you know, was, was ruling the roost. Sultai mid-range, it, it was, it was green-black splashing hydroid crisis. So it was interested in playing cards like Eldest Reborn. It was interested in playing hydroid crisis itself. It was interested in playing Vraska Relic Seeker. It was interested in playing, uh, find and finality and typically the finality half to clear the board and let its explore creatures do their jobs. It was interested in playing explore creatures. And you beat that deck with mono blue because you would get a miscloaked herald down that they just couldn't block. Well, then you'd strap a curious obsession to it and you turn it sideways. And they'd say, okay, well, I'll untap and I'll... Uh, Ravenous Chupacabra. No, you won't. I'm going to dive down. Protected. Hexproof. Oh, okay, well, that's cool. Uh, pass turn, and then you attack for two, draw a card. Pass turn. Cast my Eldest Reborn? No. Uh, Wizard's Retort says no. Or, you know, Spell Pierce the Eldest Reborn, End Step, Merfolk Trickster, Tap Down the Chupacabra, Attack for four, draw a card, pass turn. And you just keep building on that advantage. You're using these counter spells and these bounce abilities and everything to keep your opponent at bay long enough for these little chip damage attacks to get there. These are decks that are reliant on format knowledge and positioning. If you don't have a good reason to play Mono Blue Flash, don't. Because you are handicapping yourself for no reason. Your cards are on balance, rarely going to be as good as your opponents. And without a fundamental advantage generated by, you know, counter spells being good, opponents playing too many expensive cards in their decks. Without something like that to punish, these decks are usually not good enough. And typically speaking, Mono Blue Flash is an aggressive Flash decks as a whole tend to be very soft to either extreme of the metagame pendulum. Either really interested in long, long, long game control like Drago Control or really interested in the shortest game possible aggro. Because long game control will take every two for one you give them. They will take any opportunity to take cards out of your hand because as soon as they get you top decking with cards left in theirs, they've won. They know there's not a card you can draw that's powerful enough to make them have to sit back and react anymore. <laughs> On balance, fast aggro is also a bad matchup for kind of the opposite reason, where linear, like hardcore control decks are bad because you get you get kind of bodied through the mid game. You aren't able to keep up the conscious stream of card advantage or damage, as the case may be. Aggro decks are able to take away your tempo advantage because they play at the same curve that you do 
and their things are proactive. They don't have to wait for you to do anything. Like, it feels really bad to play against mono red aggro with mono blue flash and standard. Really bad. Your stone coil serpents early in the game die to all of their things. If they're playing main deck shocks, they kill your stone coils the first two turns of the game. They kill your sea dasher octopus. They kill your uh, cunning night bonders. They kill your brineborn cutthroats if you've cast less than one spell on your if you've cast less than two spells on your opponent's turn. Like it's just a really really bad matchup because even if they don't have removal, all their creatures are better than yours. Like Robber of the Rich is going to come down and steal a card from you. And then we'll awkwardly block a flying creature later in the game. Bonecrusher Giant is just massive and something you can't beat head-to-head in combat. <sighs> and we'll punish you from trying to remove it from the path. So, you know, and, and then, you know, Annex Harden the Forge, Ember Cleave are just haymaker cards that you really are going to struggle to beat so that's kind of the gist of aggro flash transitioning from aggro flash to what i call classic mid-range flash when i say classic mid-range i'm saying think like my creatures are bigger than yours but i'm still trying to be fairly aggressive and that's where you land on simic flash Now, just like Mono Blue, you, you play that low curve interaction. You play counter spells. You play a little bit of bounce. All the thing, all the trappings of your flash deck. So when I say cheap interaction, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Cheap counter spells, bounce spells, all the things that make flash decks flash decks. Simic Flash marries that cheap interaction to dominant top-end threats to overwhelm simple board states. Really good example would be the Seth Manfield variant of Simic Flash that he and two others played at Worlds, I believe. Don't quote me on that. Probably wrong. Or no, it was it was one of the it was Mythic Invitational. That's what it was. In a field that was expected to be heavily sort of inbred into teamer reclamation and decks that beat it. Seth and two others, I cannot for the life of me remember who they were, took Simic Flash. But this version was using the, the Flash archetype in a different way than people had expected at the time. They were playing your... They, they cut the Brineborn Cutthroats they played the extra lands. <sighs> Excuse me. And they were playing Nissa Who Shakes the World. <sighs> and if I recall correctly, they were playing Hydra Crisis. But the idea being, if you frilled mystic your opponent's Wilderness Reclamation on the play on turn four, And then you just untapped and jammed Anissa down their throat. It's going to be really hard for your opponent to come back from it. By that, by that logic, this deck plays in-game similarly to a tap-out control deck. You play reactive fair magic for a few turns. And then let your most powerful cards be powerful. You will jam a, a, a Nissa, a Nightpack Ambusher, or an Uro down your opponent's throat and make them deal with it. If the game state is not cluttered, if there's not a lot of permanence on the battlefield, not a lot of non-land permanence on the battlefield, countering your opponent's first real attempt at asserting any level of dominance and then immediately following it up by establishing your own can be backbreaking. Especially, for example, if you go 
Nissa into untap, attack for three, and the land you leave up is breeding pool so that you can represent negate or essence scatter. Because now if you play a scarier planeswalker or an answer directly to Nissa, well we've got a counterspell. And now Nissa's the only real thing on the battlefield. It's gonna be really hard for you to come back from them. You prey on removal light, mid-range, and big aggro. So, while it would seem on paper that this deck would struggle against the likes of Mono Red because the Mono Red deck has just so many good cards in it, you can really kind of prey on them because you can cut them off on key turns. Instead of trying to do what the Mono Blue deck does where you have to stymie their development for several turns in a row in order to keep pace, you have your own approach where you only have to stop them for like one or two turns. You know, counter the, you know, Frilled Mystic, the Ember Cleave, block the Annex. That's a good turn for you. Um, you know, Pouncing Shore Shark, the Annex, block something else. The idea behind this one is instead of trying to neutralize several turns in a row and build a snowballing advantage, you want to neutralize their whole fundamental turn. The turn they're expecting to either kill you or assert their dominance, that's the turn you're worried about. And then you want to counter tap for your own fundamental turn card. You rely on powerful top-end cards and an understanding of the key pieces of the rest of the format. Where Mono Blue wants to play a, a long, elegant Stage 2 game, this deck doesn't mind if you end up in Stage 3 as long as it gets there first. You know, you need these powerful top-end cards. Without access to cards like Nyssa, Nightback Ambush, or Uro, this deck would not be good. Simic Flash without Nyssa, Uro, Nightback Ambusher is just worse mono blue. Like, Wildborn Preserver and Growth Spiral are not enough reasons to play the extra color of mana. You're playing Simic because you have these unreasonably powerful magic cards at your disposal. And then you're soft to decks that get under you. So you can get beat up, ironically enough, by the Mono Blue Flash deck playing Simic. Because you get to a point in the mid-game where your spells cost a lot of mana. Well, you cast Frilled Mystic, their Mystical Dispute counters it real nicely. Their Essence Capture counters it and puts a counter on their creature. But even, you know, mono red decks can outspell you. Mono black aggro can outspell you. Decks that get under you and then force you to interact with multiple things that threaten to win the game, the turn you're planning to execute, you're shut you off and then counter tap. If they know the matchup, they can structure their turns and beat you up. And that brings us to kind of rock mid-range, as I like to refer to it. And that's where I put Is It Flash. <laughs> is It Flash marries your cheap interaction to incremental card advantage. We talked about that last week. Incremental card advantage is lots of little two for ones or one and a half for one exchanges. In the case of the Is It Flash deck, you're marrying your cheap interaction to cards like Brazen Borrower, Bone Crusher Giant, Gadwick the Wizened. And currently, although I've still got the updating to do, obviously, currently the last piece is, you know, Nibmizit Parun, which, fun little fact, I still have never lost a single game where I've gotten to untap all my lands with that in play. Just throwing that out there. Uh, it plays depending on the opponent. And this is where we get a little bit cute. Because... Is it flash against control decks? It sees you playing 
Omen of the Seas and uh, Birth of Miletus. Well, we're going to try to create a scenario where we can resolve a threat and protect it. We're going to try to play a fish deck role. We're going to try to get a thing down and beat you up with it, neutralizing your interaction along the way. We're playing against an aggro deck? Well, now it's a different story. Now those brazen borrowers are going to be picking up your threats. Now those bone crusher giants are going to those, you know, the stomps are going to your opponent's small creatures to keep you from falling behind. You'll trade aggressively one for one early in the game with removal and bounce and everything, and then you look to catch back up with Gadwick. And the little bit of card advantage you can grind out from Borrower, Bone Crusher, and Gadwick, Nibmizit, whatever. What you want to do is try to figure out what role your opponent's on and play the other one. Where the rest of the decks seek almost a, you know, a, a clearly defined role and look to prey on something and then be soft to something else. This deck wants a fairly even matchup spread that they can fix via sideboarding. Even if that even spread is like 45-55 against the field, the ability to take that matchup and be able to play your way through any game and then sideboard into a configuration of spells that can give you a chance, that's why you're registering is it, and that's why I like it right now. You rely on flexible cards that fill a lot of roles and good two-for-ones. Like right now, the Is It Flash deck, the, the list I have from back in December that I'm still playing. Cards like Bone Crusher Giant, Brazen Borrower, Rouse Outburst. These are all very good cards for neutralizing aggro starts. Rouse Outburst starts pulling you some two-for-ones. Bone Crusher Giant represents a two-for-one because you kill their small creature and then jam a Bone Crusher Giant that's probably at least going to trade up for a four-drop. Uh, Brazen Borrower will bounce something and then threaten pressure on a Planeswalker or will bounce a creature and then aggressively trade into a flyer so that you can simplify the board. On balance, those same cards against a control deck, well, Stomp from Bone Crusher Giant finishes off a Planeswalker. Or even Scorching Dragonfire against the field. It's good against the aggro decks. It exiles Anax, doesn't give them the satyrs, or you know whatever else you pointed at with an Anax on the board. It exiles... But in your more controlling matchups, in your mid-range matchups where there's a bunch of Planeswalkers and non-creature spells, it still kills and exiles a Planeswalker, so it's not there for your opponent's Elspeth Conquer's death, giving you a form of virtual card advantage. It snipes down the Titans in response to their sacrifice trigger. You give up the, the short-term card advantage, your opponent still gets their two-for-one. You know, Croxa is going to take a card from your hand and then you play the, the Dragonfire. They're going to take their two-for-one and they're going to be happy about it. But you're cutting off the next one. And then, you know, Stomp will take down a Teferi that bounced your cutthroat. I've found myself more frequently in matchups against Teferi Time Raveler. They jam it down on the field and I don't have the Dispute or Negate. I'm going to flash in a creature and see if I can get them to bounce it. Because if they bounce it, now Teferi dies to every piece of burn-related damage in my deck. Where if they plus, now I've got a... Well, now if they plus after I play a creature, now I can beat him down into range of all of my burn-related interactions. You know, so Brineborn Cutthroat being an early chump blocker against aggro decks and later in the game can come down and rapidly outsize creatures. Well, it's also good against control decks even when it feels like the matchup isn't good. 
And the biggest problem you will run into playing something like Is It Flash is when you register the wrong 75. You make the wrong choices. You build your main deck too heavily for aggro and play against nothing but um, ramp and control. If you've got a bunch of removal spells in your main deck and you play against a control deck, it feels really bad. Your game ones become nearly unwinnable and then you have to fight your way through too to get, to get the win. And that's true of just about any of the rock-style mid-range decks I've ever seen. You're at your worst if you've registered the wrong 75 cards. Otherwise, you're not awful against anything, but you're not great against anything either. It's the kind of deck that offers you a lot of play. And that brings us to the Control Flash deck, which is Demir Flash. You marry your cheap interaction to snowballing card advantage, which, again, we talked about last week where incremental card advantage is two-for-ones that you gradually build by taking all those exchanges that you can. Snowballing card advantage is establishing an engine card that the more times you untap with it, the more times you get to trigger that ability, you're going to be gradually plussing every time you do it. In the Demir Flash deck, those two key cards are Slitherwisp and Sea-Dash Octopus. Slitherwisp says every time you cast a card with Flash, you draw a card and your opponent loses one life. Seedasher Octopus says every time I connect, I draw a card. You seek to outlast your opponent, leading them to the long game. You don't want to... You don't want the game to... Uh, you, you don't want to just jam your threats onto the table and see what happens. You don't want to deploy your threats early. Like, those engine cards are the only way you are going to grind somebody with the mere flash. As such, you play very much like a draw-go control deck. You're interested in playing as little on your own turn as possible. Force your opponent to do everything. Make, to, to make a Disney movie, quote, make them make the first move bonus points if you know what movie that's from be very proud of you if you did because it's not even on Disney Plus yet you rely on flexible answers and good grinding engine cards this would not be a deck without Slitherwisp pure and simple there would be no incentive to playing this over something like Is It or uh, mono, even Mono Blue without access to a, the powerful grinding engine that is Slitherwisp. You could play it with something like Thief of Sanity. Maybe you even go as far as to play Grixis in order to play Thief and Robber the Rich. But both of those cards require you to tap your mana early in the game. That's not good. You rely on flexible answers, good grinding engine cards, and you are soft as can be to control decks that are more heavily designed to be control decks, which is to say control decks that are very, very, very light on cards that they play on their own turn. You're, you're soft sort of in the Drago mirror because more of their cards do stuff to you than your cards do to them. And you're also soft to an opponent who knows the matchup well enough to prioritize removing your engine cards and making you fight them one for one. And last but not least, we have Combo Flash. And this is going to be a little bit controversial. Because for me, the, the deck that represents Combo Flash in standard is Team of Reclamation. But hear me out. What are you doing when you play Team of Reclamation? You're playing cards like Brazen Borrower, maybe Scorching Dragonfire, probably Mystical Dispute, Aether Gust, Thassa's Intervention neutralize, negates in the board. That sounds an awful lot like cheap interaction to me. You're playing cards like Chemister's Insight. It sounds an awful lot like grinding out instant speed two for once. And if there was if there was no other key example I could give, how many of these reclamation decks are playing Nightback Ambusher now? 
as a main deck staple. It's a flash deck. You marry your cheap interaction to a game-ending combo. You largely play the control role. You're similar to Demir Flash. You play as a Drago deck. You want to play as much on your opponent's turn as possible. Maybe you cycle a Shark Typhoon on their turn, make a token, draw a card, start beating them down. Opponent's forced to interact. Well, you still get a two-for-one, right? You still get to play the control deck. But instead of being a control deck with a clearly defined, like, this is my top-end card, your top-end quote-unquote card is a combo that kills them from nearly any life total. Like, they know the longer the game goes on, the less likely they are to win, even if they gain life, even if they end up way up in the stratosphere in life totals. Because eventually... You can simplify the board state, you can get a couple of chip shots in with a shark, a shark token or two, and then you can just explosion them for 20 out of nowhere because you get double reclamation and a bunch of lands. By that token, you seek to use the opponent's fear of a fast combo to grind them out with a few flash threats or even just something like a quick Uro. Even if you just Uro on turn three and then play a bunch of one-for-ones for a few turns in order to turn it on. If you can go Wilderness Reclamation on four, untap, protect the lead, untap again, escape the Uro, draw a card, gain three, put a land into play, untap, it's kind of hard for you to lose. But it's even harder for you to lose when your opponent has to weigh how much they care about that Uro versus how much they care about just actively dying to that expansion explosion that might be in your hand. With that in mind, they rely on having a better end game than the rest of the format. Similar to when I played uh, Jeskai Tap Out Control with the Sahili Felidar Guardian combo in it. The idea was, if you're going to have a long game control deck, there's not a better long game control win condition than just kill your opponent. You have a better end game than the rest of the format, and you have enough tools in your, your arsenal. You have enough, enough utensils on the tool belt to win the game the fair way. And you are soft to... The tried and true formula for beating up combo decks for the entire history of Magic, disruption plus clock. Ironically, that means you're actually soft. Again, we go all the way back. You're soft to the aggro flash decks. Because they don't, you know, they can make the game about something that you aren't comfortable making it about. Uro doesn't block unblockable creatures. Uro doesn't block flyers. And if they can keep Uro tapped down, or if they can bounce Uro, it takes you time to redeploy it. And even if you draw a card, even if you gain three life, even if you do it twice, they're chipping in for four, for six, drawing cards. Countering the Uro when you escape it. Well, that puts you further behind. Disruption plus clock is a tried and true method for beating up on combo decks. And it's no exception for Team of Reclamation. And then the other thing you can be soft to is when you think you've got the green light to just jam the combo down their throat, if they break it up, there's nothing you can do. If you are in on the combo and you are, you know, in the midst of executing, it can feel really bad to have your explosion hit by a Narset's reversal. It can feel really bad when you leave all your lands, un- you know, you, your, your plan is to spell on your own turn. You cast the second reclamation and they wilt the first one in response. 
Well, now you don't have enough mana to execute the combo, and you also can't, like, take an extra round of casting spells to find everything. It puts you a little bit further behind. So that's that's kind of the long and short of it, everybody. That's that's the that's the flash player version of flash decks. I'm going to be playing a lot of these this summer because it seems to be the only deck I can play without making a complete idiot out of myself on the ladder. So I'm going to be sharing a lot of updates, uh, provided we don't get a deck from Patreon, obviously. If we do, that takes the slot of anything I'm playing on the ladder. But I digress. That's all I've got for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you had a pleasant week in between. Um, if you have questions, comments, concerns, send them to me on Twitter. I'm at HomewardPathMTG. On Facebook, my name is Adam Spain. You can join the Homeward Pathfinders Facebook page. Just look it up. Uh, if you want to support the show in a more direct fashion, patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg. The show is always going to be free, but if you like what we're doing enough to help me keep doing it, I will be very happy to have the support. And another thing that is on the agenda here in the next couple of weeks, I've got to, I've got to kind of iron out details on what I can do. But one of the things I want to do, we'll, we'll set a tentative deadline for the first Friday in August. I want to start doing arena FMs with my listeners, with, I don't know, two of the decks, the, the winner and one really cool one, getting a profile on the show every week. I think that'd be really cool. Might give me some ideas for episode topics. We'd be helping each other. And improving together as we play at Magic. I love being able to interact with everybody. And I love the people that have already reached out and become friends. Either via Messenger or Twitter or whatever. Or even the ones that I play with on Arena. I love everybody. It's kind of my thing. I like people. I'm a people person. But with that in mind. We go to sort of the post-game. And i got to get it pulled up. Give me just a second. For those of you who don't know, I'm, again, a, you know, I'm a dad. And with that comes a certain responsibility. <laughs> there it is. We got two. We get two. Yeah, two. Uh, certain responsibility as a, as a father and a, just a general lover of puns. Most of my favorite stand-up comedy bits are centered on hilarious usage of wordplay. MTG Dad Jokes was an easy selection for my end-of-show Twitter outreach program. So bear in mind in the future, if you have one tweeted at me, I will read it on the show. First one comes to me from my good friend Brian Canada, who says, A viewer just made a great dad joke. They asked if hurricane was a win condition or a wind condition? The correct answer is both. It's both. Both things. It's fantastic. I love it. And last but not least, from Saffron Olive. I actually I, I found this when I saw it and tagged it myself so I'd read it. Said, I was hyped to play some Pioneer after today's BNR update, but I guess you could say my excitement has been inverted gosh what a wielder of mysteries that is so sad <laughs> anyway that's all i got for this week everybody thanks again for listening i hope you enjoyed it be sure to check it out you know be sure to check us out all over the web youtube constructorcriticism.com puremtgo.com everywhere you can find us let them know we sent you it helps it helps us out really does and i will be back next week but as i leave 
Remember, we've all been going through a lot of stuff. Quarantine is not fun for anybody. Not for as long as we've been dealing with it. So remember when you're interacting with people, in person, online, whatever. The twelfth doctor comes to us with the best words of wisdom. Never be cruel, never be cowardly. Remember, hate is always foolish, and love is always wise. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So go forth, flash in some stuff on your opponent's end step, and be kind. We'll catch you next week.